Today on Something You Should Know, is coffee good for you or bad for you or what? We'll look at what the science has to say. Then we're learning more and more about heredity, what your parents do and don't pass down to you. Heredity means a lot to us. And it's really interesting, especially because now we can look at individual genes. So for height, I can give you a list of genes and say, I know that each of these genes plays a role in how tall you are. Plus, I'll explain how couples can stop fighting about money, which is one of the biggest reasons they fight in the first place. And a fascinating look at how apologies and forgiveness really work. By the way, you know, you can continue a relationship without forgiving the other person. And one of the myths about forgiveness is that you forgive or you don't forgive 100%, and that's not true. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. One of the things I've learned doing this podcast is that the titles of each episode really matter. And the more clever and witty and suck you in kind of titles I can come up with, the more people listen in the first few days of the episode being published. So I spend a lot of time trying to come up with clever, witty, <laughs> suck you in kind of titles. But in the, last, uh, in the last episode, episode 175, I really struggled with coming up with a clever title for the interview I did with Henry Timms, author of New Power. And the best I could come up with was how to harness the power of online communities, which I thought was really terrible. But it, I, I couldn't come up with a clever, witty way and did pay the price. Uh, it wasn't listened to by as many people as other episodes in the first few days, and I think that's largely due to the lousy title that I came up with. And yet I got more comments on that interview than probably any other one single interview because it really was interesting about how people, anyone, you, me, anyone, can, can create more power for ourselves within our own world using the Internet and the communities available on the Internet. So if my title uh, put you off, How to Harness the Power of Online Communities didn't excite you much and you didn't listen, I'll lobby here to go back and give it a listen because it really was a fascinating interview. First up today, we're going to talk about coffee because one day coffee is good for you and the next day it's not so good for you. What are you supposed to believe? So here's what we know from science about coffee. You've probably heard that coffee stunts your growth. Well, it does not. Your mother may have told you that when you were a kid, but there is no truth to it. There's some evidence that coffee leaches some calcium from your bones. However, the calcium leaching effect of one cup of coffee is so small, it can be balanced out with two tablespoons of milk, so it's probably not going to make you shorter. Coffee is a diuretic, so you've probably heard people say, well, you shouldn't drink it because it'll dehydrate you. Wrong again. Yes, caffeine will make you head to the bathroom more often, but the amount of fluid you lose is less than previously thought. So yes, you can count coffee as part of your daily fluid intake. Cancer patients often report that they give up coffee because they believe it's unhealthy. However, coffee is on the list of cancer-fighting foods published by the American Institute for Cancer Research because it is so high in antioxidants. 
Perhaps you've heard that caffeine raises your blood pressure. For most healthy people, caffeine can cause a short, temporary increase in blood pressure, but it isn't harmful in the long run. People with high blood pressure, however, should talk to a doctor to see whether caffeine should be limited. And forever, people have said that coffee is good for a hangover. Well, it really isn't. Caffeine stimulates the central nervous system, and it can help you focus better. But there's nothing in coffee that will help any other symptom of a hangover, nor will it sober you up when you're drunk. It'll just give you a more wide-awake drunk. And that is something you should know. When you hear the word hereditary, you probably think about things like eye color or hair color or height, things like that. Things you inherit from your parents or that are passed down through generations of families. But it turns out there's a lot of misunderstanding about what is and isn't hereditary and how much of who you are is determined by heredity versus your environment versus your personal choice. And science is learning so much about this with so much more to discover in the future. It's a fascinating subject, and no one has tackled it better than Carl Zimmer. Carl writes for the New York Times. He teaches science writing at Yale University, and he's author of a really interesting and really big book called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. Hi, Carl. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, thanks for having me. So what is heredity? How do you define it? I mean, most of us know what we mean by, you know, passing down from your parents your eye color or your hair color, but, but dive in a little deeper here. Well, heredity is a word that's been around for a long time. I mean, the ancient Romans would talk about heredity, and their word was hereditas, and, and it referred to the rules by which people inherited stuff from each other. And, uh, you know, we still talk about inheriting money or houses or what have you. But by the 1800s, people were thinking about other things that uh, people inherited. You know, why was it that diseases seemed to run in families, uh, for example? So, so people started to look for explanations for why each generation resembled the previous generation uh, in, in different ways. And that's what led to the discovery of genetics. But that doesn't necessarily mean that just saying like, oh, it's, it's just genes is really the full answer to heredity. Actually, that's just really kind of the starting point for understanding what heredity is and why it means so much to us. Well, those are good questions. What is it and why does it mean so much to us? You know, I, I think we have developed an idea that um, if we want to understand our own identity and who we are, we have to look to the past, so that somehow we can zero in on, on some ancestor to, to figure out how our lives ended up the way they are. Uh, and, you know, so this is what drives the, you know, the huge genealogy business today and, and the direct-to-consumer genetics testing. I mean, we want to we want to find out, are we, are we 27% Irish, and, and can we uh, identify our great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, and maybe there's something like us in, in that person. But, you know, I would just broadly say that heredity is, is what the past gave the present and what the present is going to leave for the future. How do you know, or can you know, or is it even important to know that if some relative or ancestor had some trait or some quirk or some behavior that you have, whether that's inherited 
or there are just so many traits and quirks and things that people have that if you compare yourself to enough people, you're going to have some things in common. I think a lot of things that we single out are just uh, coincidences. There, there are things that lots of people have, and it just so happens that one of your many, many relatives has it in common with you. Uh, it's a bit like astrology that way. Uh, you know, yeah, you can find some coincidences that seem compelling, but you know, you, I think we need to sort of look deeper. And it is possible, you know, that you are similar to your parents, not necessarily because you share genes with them, but also because they raised you. And you were paying very close attention to them, you like it or not, and uh, you are getting to be like them. That's not to say that genetics don't play a role. I mean, you know, tall people tend to have tall children and short people tend to have short children. I mean, that's a fact. But it's not simple, you know, uh, and it's perfectly normal to have people who are very short have kids who are very tall and vice versa. Um, that happens. So to, to really understand who you are, and how you tie to the past is, is no simple uh, job at all. But since it's the title of your book, is it true that, uh, that people have their mothers laugh, or is it just that they lived in the house with their mother who laughed, and so they laugh like her because they heard it so much? I don't think science can really, you know, deliver us the definitive answer for, for those sorts of questions. But you hear people say that. I mean, you know, I, I've said that about my daughter. And, you know, I, I'll hear other people talking about some trait. And, um, and we're very convinced that that's, that that's where it came from. And, you know, to me, this underlying science is, is so fascinating and complex. You know, there's genes, there are other kinds of molecules, there's culture, there are all sorts of things that go into c- making this connection between the past and the present. Um, but, you know, if you want to really prove that, you know, you have your, your mother's laugh, um, you know, science isn't quite ready to help you out just yet. How does culture enter into this discussion? Well, uh, culture is really uh, kind of like a separate channel of heredity that we humans have. I mean, we're, we humans are really extraordinary that we really have a, 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 a completely different channel of heredity that other species don't have. So, you know, we can give information, uh, and knowledge, uh, customs to our children, to future generations, through language and through learning and so on. I mean, we're the only species where there's really good evidence of teaching. That's really remarkable because what that means is that, that it's not like every generation has to just relearn how to crack open a nut with a rock. You can teach children how to do it, and then when they grow up, they could get better at it, and they can teach their kids that as well. And so you have this heredity of culture that's traveling down. It's been traveling down our species probably for hundreds of thousands of years, and it's a, it's a real secret to our success as a species. So if you can't really say that you have your mother's laugh because you inherited it in the sense that it 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 was a direct connection and it passed down, well, then what good is this discussion? If sometimes it's true and maybe it's not and maybe science can help and maybe it can't, well, if it, if it were in such the early stages, how come your book is so thick? <laughs> well, one reason the book is so thick is because heredity has this long, deep, powerful history. Heredity means a lot to us. 
And so part of what I'm doing in the book is, is trying to explore why it means so much to us and also like what kind of trouble we can get ourselves into by searching for that value. You know, there's some very dangerous aspects to our obsession with heredity. You can look to the early 1900s in the United States when genetics emerged. There were a number of very powerful voices who said, aha, we understand heredity completely. We understand uh, why some people are, you know, score higher on intelligence tests than others. Not only that, but we think that people who, uh, you know, score low on these tests should be sterilized. There were thousands upon thousands of people who were sterilized in the United States based on a, a, a very a wrong notion about heredity. And, and, you know, the Nazi Germany borrowed a lot of these ideas from the United States and took them to, to more, even more horrific extremes. So, you know, whether we really understand heredity yet or not, it still matters enormously to us. And so we have to really understand what do we really know about heredity so far and how much of this is just almost like illusions that we're, we're giving ourselves about it. My guest is Carl Zimmer. He writes for the New York Times, and he's author of a new book called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. For me, I know how I sleep and what I sleep on really matters, so it makes sense to ask yourself, why sleep on a mattress built for everyone when you can sleep on a mattress built just for you? Working with the world's leading sleep experts, Helix Sleep developed a mattress that's customized to your specific height, weight, and sleep preferences so you can have the best sleep of your life at an unbeatable price. Here's how it works. Go to helixsleep.com, fill out their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll design your custom mattress. They can even customize each side for you and your partner. Now, in 2018, Helix Sleep has taken customized sleep to the next level with the Helix Pillow. The all-new pillows are fully adjustable, so you can achieve perfect comfort regardless of sleep position or body type. Helix Sleep has thousands of five-star reviews, plus you get a hundred nights to try them out. Go to helixsleep.com something right now, and you'll get up to $125 towards your mattress order. That's helixsleep.com something for up to $125 off your mattress order helixsleep.com slash something. A shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and... This is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin D for years because, well, just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. 
Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. So, Carl, as you said earlier, tall people sometimes have tall children, but sometimes they don't. And, and some people with blue eyes have kids with blue eyes, but sometimes they don't. So, so what are you supposed to take from that? Well, it's not random, and you can actually like put a number on on that. Sometimes scientists will call it heritability, and so you can say, uh, well, for height, how much of the variation in a population is due to the variation in their genes? And the answer to that is about maybe eighty percent. So, so really, like genes play a huge role in in whether people are uh, tall or short, and you know, so you get a lot from your parents in that regard. There are other traits that are, you know, much less heritable, but there's still some heritability in them, you know, like, you know, how your personality, like, are you kind of a neurotic person, for example, that's, you, you get some of that from genetically from your parents, but there's a lot of it is just environmental variation. And so, so it's not that heredity is, is meaningless. It's just that it's, it's really complicated. And it's really interesting, too, especially because now we can look at individual genes. So for height, I can give you a list of genes and say, I know that, that each of these genes plays a role in how tall you are. Now, each one might only you know, make you maybe an eighth of an inch taller on average. So they're all tiny. But together, um, they are influencing your height in really profound ways. And we're going to find other... Uh, other lists of genes for all sorts of things, for risks of diseases and so on and so forth. Um, so we're just at the beginning of, of really drilling into this side of heredity. Uh, so it's an exciting time to be writing about this. But let's say that you grow up in a house uh, with parents who are anxious and depressed. And so when you get older, you have anxiety and depression. And is it worth discussing whether or not it's heredity or environment, or it doesn't? It doesn't really matter. It's not. It's it's a moot point. It it doesn't really get to the problem. It's just a interesting discussion. I think for individual cases at this point, it probably usually doesn't matter. 
but in, it may be that in the future um, there may be ways of, of learning how to better deal with those disorders by understanding those genes that put us at risk. But very, very casually, people will say, well, you know, Fred's mother drank a lot, so that's why he drinks a lot. Or Fred's mother was sickly and was sick all the time, and that's why he's sick all the time. Can you claim that or not? No, I don't. I, I, in a sort of, you know, casual individual basis, no, I don't, I don't think that anybody can, can really know that. <laughs> there, are, there are definitely like some clear-cut cases, like, let's say, Huntington's disease. Okay, like we know that's caused by one mutation at one gene, and and if if your mother or father had Huntington's disease, you have a fifty percent chance of inheriting that one mutation. And if you did, you're going to get Huntington's disease. And so if you if you go on and develop Huntington's disease, people can say like, well, it's a shame that he got it from his mother. And we know that we that's that's clear cut. But those diseases are 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 rare. So you just say, like, oh, he drinks because his father drank. Yeah, I think that's too glib. So what do you think of all these genetic tests that people can have, you know, spit in a tube and, and learn all about your past and what you may or may not uh, be liable to get? What, what's your thought on that? You know, I am, as you can tell by writing a book about this sort of stuff, I am intensely fascinated by how our genes influence us. Um, but when, you, when people get these results from these companies, um, I think they're looking for, you know, quick and simple answers. Tell me what my DNA says about me. That's a complicated thing to tell for the most part. It, it's pretty easy to say, hey, you have this mutation uh, uh, that, that if you're a man means you're, um, you're colorblind. That's pretty clear. But, you know, when you start to get into issues about, say, risks of diseases, then, you know, you really need to read that fine print. 23andMe is now starting to um, provide, you know, uh, results for your risks of diseases like, like breast cancer and other diseases. And in some cases, you know, they're only looking at certain mutations in these genes like the BRCA gene. You know, and, and if you don't happen to have those mutations, they'll say, okay, you don't have a risk of breast cancer from these mutations. But we know that people have other mutations on these genes, and they could have risks as well. So um, you can't take these things as some sort of like, you know, you, you can't take a, a test result that says you don't have these mutations as meaning you will never get cancer. It's more complicated than that. Is there any science behind the idea, let's say you look more like your mother than your father, that you're more likely to have other things from your mother than your father? No, there's no connection between that and the genes that, you know, that influence development of your liver or your brain or so on. Um, it's not like, you know, just because you look like one of your parents, you are more like them in some sort of deep way. You inherit 50% of your genes from one parent, 50% from the other. So genetically speaking, you know, you're just a perfect you know, 50-50 split between your parents. Well, it is, I mean, it is so interesting, and it is so unpredictable. I mean, for example, my, I have three brothers, and uh, they've all, they all lost their hair, most of their hair, pretty early. I did not. I don't have as much as I used to, but I still have my hair. And my father had his hair until he, he died, but his father was bald. So you wonder, well, well, where's the pattern there? There's no, 
So, so if there is no pattern, maybe there is no pattern and there's nothing to discuss. It's possible that a couple of generations back, you know, your father inherited some genes that raise your risk of, of baldness, but then also inherited other genes that lowered the risk and maybe sort of dominated over the other genes. Um, and then it was just sort of a, you know, which, which copies of those genes that he then passed down to you and your siblings, just roll the dice. And so for these complicated traits, you know, you may have genes that are sort of tugging that in different directions. You know, I, I've had my genome sequence and I, and I can see that I have certain genes that raise my risk of cancer, certain genes that lower my risk of the same cancers, you know, and, and do they even out? Well, that's kind of a hard thing to know right now because we still don't know that much about these genes. So to end up with this pattern in your family, most of your siblings, you know, being bald and, and, and you not, like, that's, the, that's what you expect from heredity. What about uh, dominant handedness, whether you're left or right handed? Is that heredity or is that something else? That does seem to be uh, quite heritable. The sort of genetic basis of that is really still quite mysterious. And it's an odd thing because it's only, I guess, around 15% or so of, of people are left handed. I'm left handed. I am too. And there's my nobody friend. else in my family that's left handed for generations. Well, I mean, how many generations back have you interrogated people, though? That's, you yeah. know, that would be an interesting thing to, to find out. I mean, well, you have to and also, that, uh, in earlier generations, the left-handed people were forced to become right-handed, so you may never right. know. So, Absolutely right. Is there a potential breakthrough around the corner that's going to put all this stuff in focus, or is this going to be little incremental, things will get a little bit better and you can hardly notice, but uh, over time, things will get better? Well, I think we are in the middle of a real revolution in bringing uh, an understanding of heredity to our health because, you know, it is possible now for each of us to get all of our DNA sequenced, our whole genome for $1,000, maybe even a few hundred dollars. I mean, you have to remember the first human genome project cost about $3 billion dollars. And so it's a, it's a kind of revolution like what we see in computers and phones, you know, in terms of DNA sequencing and also DNA analysis. And um, we have so much data now and, and use computers to develop really complex models that can take on all this complexity. So I really do think that like in 10 or 20 years, medicine is going to be uh, remarkably different. It won't be any one single eureka moment. It's going to be the collective work of many, many scientists who are doing that work right now. It's a really exciting time. It really is remarkable when you, you put it that way, when the first human genome cost billions of dollars, and now for a couple hundred dollars, you can, you know, spit in a tube and send it away and get back a lot of information that, that you could never get before. It's, it's a fascinating topic. Carl Zimmer's been my guest his book is called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. And there is a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate you being here. No, my, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily.
Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Being the imperfect creatures that we are, we all do things that upset and hurt other people, which in turn does damage to the relationship. So the thing we're supposed to do when that happens is apologize. But how you say you're sorry really determines whether or not the apology really helps fix the situation or potentially makes it worse. Relationship expert and psychotherapist Harriet Lerner has spent many years studying this, and her latest book is all about it. It's called Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. Hi, Harriet. Welcome. So why do you think this is so important, this whole topic of apologies? Well, we all unwittingly hurt others just as we're hurt by them. So the need to give and receive apologies is with us until our very last breath. And when done right, apologies can be deeply healing. And when the apology is absent or it's done wrong, that really compromises a relationship or it could even end it. So I've been interested in apologies for actually for much of my career What actually got me to sit down and write the book is that I was on the receiving end of a really awful gaslighting, blame-reversing apology, and that's what got me to sit down at the computer and start writing. So I wonder why then, if a really well-delivered, heartfelt apology really helps fix things, Why is it so hard to do, and why is it so hard to get it right? It's not that we're motivated to give a bad apology. It's not that we say to ourselves, gee, you know, how can I muck up this apology so the other person ends up feeling worse? It's just that humans are wired for defensiveness. We are wired for it. So it's very hard for humans to take clear and direct responsibility for specifically what we have said and done, and to apologize without a hint of evasion, blaming, obfuscation, minimization. It's quite a challenge, and there are certain ways we automatically muck it up without realizing it. For example? Well, there's that little word, But, for example, I'm so sorry that I forgot to call you, but I was just swamped. I was overloaded with work. Everything fell through the cracks. It doesn't matter if what you say after the but is true. The but makes the apology false. 
And it's interesting because this little word, but, almost always signifies a rationalization, a criticism, an excuse. So, you know, the first rule is get your but out of your apology. And then another very common way that we muck up the apology that's a little more subtle is that we focus on the other person's feelings or reactions. Like, I'm so sorry that you were hurt. I'm sorry I made you angry. Rather than apologizing for what we said or did or failed to say or do. And this is really an important one. Um, For example, if you say, I'm really sorry that people were offended by the joke I told at the meeting, it's not an apology. There's no accountability. The apology would be the joke I told at the meeting was insensitive. It was out of line. I'm sorry. I want to assure you that it won't happen again. So a real apology begins with the specific words or behaviors that we're sorry for and not with that we're sorry that the other person reacted the way they did. So those would be the top two. All right. Well, I want to go back to your but one, because if if you forgot to call me and you apologize that you forgot to call me, I might want to know why. I want to know the but. I might want to, it, it might help me understand better that, you know, that you got stuck on the train and the train was in the tunnel and, and that's why you didn't call, that might make me feel a lot better. If, in fact, for example, if I were stuck on the train, I might say, I'm so sorry that I'm late, but the train got stuck and I couldn't reach you. That's not an apology. It, it's an explanation. You know, we do that all the time. We say, you know, I'm sorry... I'm sorry that you got this diagnosis. I'm sorry that you're going through this tough time. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of empathy, but don't confuse it with an apology. An apology meaning that you're accountable for hurting another person or being insensitive. A real apology will not have the word but. An explanation, I'm sorry I'm 15 minutes late, but I was stuck in traffic, Uh, that's different. Sometimes, though, when you want to apologize, you want to apologize because you want to... Somebody has to take responsibility, and we really need to put this behind us. But it isn't that I did something to you or you did something to me. Things kind of went bad and maybe we both had a role in this and there's responsibility and accountability on both sides, but I'm apologizing so we can get past this. Still in that situation, and even if you're convinced that you're only 47% to blame or you're only 28% to blame, it's helpful to be able to take responsibility for that part, to be able to say, I apologize for my part in this, and, you know, this is what, this is how I think I contributed. And to be able to do that first, for example, if you say, I'm really sorry that I went out and made this major purchase 
without consulting you. Please remember that you did that last week. You went out and you, you know, bought that thing and you didn't consult me. You're really undoing your apology and the high integrity and better thing to do would be to be able to apologize for your part and then leave some silence there. And, you know, another way that we muck up an apology that's very important is that we don't really want to listen to the hurt party's anger and pain because it's not the words, I'm sorry, that heal the injury. The hurt party wants us to really get it. They want us to validate and care about their feelings and to carry some of the pain we've caused them to feel. So no apology will have meaning if we're talking about something, you know, important. No apology will have meaning if we haven't listened carefully to the hurt party's anger and pain. And I I think that's the hardest part when it's a really big betrayal or a big hurt We just want to say, I'm sorry, we want it to be over with, and it's so hard to really open up our hearts, put our defensiveness on a shelf, and really get it. Well, and and how many times have you been on, I've been on the the other end of that apology, and and heard something like, well, see, I apologized, and as if... Just saying the words "I'm sorry" should just wash this away. When you don't, you heard the words "I'm sorry," but you don't think the person actually gets it. Exactly. Or there needs to be more than one or two conversations. For example, in my consulting room as a therapist, and let's say there's been an affair. What I'll frequently hear, you know, the husband may say to his wife, "I've told you." five times that I'm sorry. Why do you keep bringing it up? And of course, the more that he tries to muzzle her and he communicates that he doesn't want to listen to it, the more tightly she will hold on to her pain. So in a case, again, a case of a serious betrayal, that husband may need to listen for as long as it takes and to really let her know that he's carrying some of the pain. I think everybody's been in that situation where someone has said or heard, why are you still upset? I already apologized. And, and I, suspect, I suspect that's probably not a particularly productive thing to say. It's not a very helpful thing to say, but I've already apologized, meaning so, you know, why are you bringing it up again? It would be more helpful to say, is there, is there more that you haven't told me? Is there something that I'm not getting here? Because a, a good apology helps the hurt person to feel safe and soothed in the relationship again. What's the anatomy of a really good apology? Take, take me through what one sounds like. A really good apology 
involves caring about the relationship. It means accepting responsibility for our part of the problem, even when the other person can't see their own contribution to the problem. And it usually is short. The the good apology initially usually is short because when we go on and on, we're going to end up making explanations that are actually excuses. So the good apology starts out very simply. You know, what what I said at the party was really out of line when I kept correcting your stories. You told me that you don't like that, and I was correcting your stories anyway, and I was wrong. I I apologize for that, and I want to assure you that it's not going to happen again. There's this belief, I think, that many people have that if someone sincerely apologizes, that you should forgive them. But should you? I mean, what, what, if it's, what if it's unforgivable? You know, many people believe that forgiveness, like gratitude, is a universally healing emotion. So I hear people, for example, in my consulting room say things to, for example, a mother says to her daughter, what your father did happened a long time ago. He did the best he could. You need to forgive him. You need to move on. You need to not live in the past. That is not helpful. And in fact, the words, you know, can't you forgive him already, are the last words that a hurt person needs to hear. Um, And ditto for cliches like, Your mom did the best she could. It is what it is. This happened 40 years ago. You need to move on for your own sake. When we ask someone to forgive, we ask another person to forgive, someone who's never apologized to them, we can leave that person feeling alone and abandoned and disoriented all over again. So it's not our place to tell another person that they need to forgive someone who's never cared about their feelings, who's never apologized, who's never tried to get it, a person who won't orient toward reality. It's simply not our job to say that, and it can hurt them all over again. It would seem that time plays a part in this. I, I may not be able to forgive you now, but give me give me a little time and, and you know, I'll come around. But right now it's just too fresh, it, it's too painful, and, and let's just give it some time. Yeah, that might be a, a very wise thing to say, if that's what you're feeling. And by the way, you know, you can continue a relationship without forgiving the other person. You you can say, you know, this particular thing that you've done, I don't forgive, but we have a long history. I love a lot about you, and let's just move on. And one of the myths about forgiveness is that you forgive or you don't forgive 100%, and that's not true. 
you can forgive 10% or you can forgive 90% or whatever you don't, please. Like, for example, a woman, going back to the subject of affairs, a woman said to her husband, after a lot of good work that he did earning back her trust, she said to him, I forgive you for the affair, but I will never forgive you for sleeping with her in our bed when I was away seeing my dying mother. So I will never forgive you for that. And she told him that she forgave him 90%, but that was the 10% that for her was not forgivable. And they moved on, and they had quite a good marriage. Well, it is interesting how people are often defined by the worst thing they do, especially if it goes public, and and especially if it's really horrendous. I mean, you commit murder, that's kind of what you're known as, as as a murderer. Uh, But people aren't just the bad things they do, just as they aren't just the good things they do. People are much larger and more complex than the worst things that they've ever done, Mike. So that it's very useful and a sign of maturity that we can hold people accountable for the very bad things that they've done, but we can also see them as bigger, larger, more complex, and ever-changing people who sometimes need to apologize for what they've done. Harriet Lerner has been my guest. Her book is called Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. There's a link to her book in the show notes for this episode. Thanks, Harriet. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Couples fight about money a lot. It's one of the main reasons for conflict and one of the big reasons couples split. Why? Well, certified financial planner Jeff Motsky has a theory. Couples fight about money because they never talk about it until it becomes a fight. And that's never going to go very well. So he recommends couples make a money date night. Go out to dinner and talk about money in a nice, calm, unemotional way. Specifically, what are the financial goals for the family? Are we saving enough for the future? And if not, can we agree on how to do that? And talk about the what-ifs. What if my mother has to move in with us? What if you lose your job? What if, what if, what if? Discussing those issues in an emotionally charged argument is what leads to trouble. So the trick is to discuss financial issues before that happens and before the what-ifs become here and now. And that is something you should know. If you want or need to get a hold of me, mike at somethingyoushouldknow.net is my email address. I try to respond to every email I get, and I appreciate you listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.